0: Now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temen.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, October 31st, 2023. Happy Halloween. Seven minutes past the hour. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Our producer is Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of The Federal Drive, when to express an opinion and when to zip it up when on the job. Plus, a longtime Fed in the financial management arena gets some much-deserved recognition. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Biden administration is calling on all agencies to staff up on experts in all things artificial intelligence. That's according to an executive order that President Joe Biden signed on Monday. The White House is also calling on agencies to set policies for how they will use AI tools internally to further the business of government. For an update on all of this, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins us with more. Jory, welcome. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me. So what does this EO mean for federal hiring, first off?
2: Well, more than any other executive order of its kind that we've seen before, this one really has more to-dos for federal agencies and internal use of AI within the federal government more than any of these other ones that we've seen. And hiring is a huge part of it here. This executive order directs the Office of Personnel Management to lead a government-wide AI talent surge. And we'll get some more details on that soon. But a senior administration official briefed reporters on this EO Sunday evening, and he said that agencies are really going to be encouraged to use the full breadth of hiring tools at their disposal, including direct hiring authority to get new talent in the door. And that includes a couple of programs meant to target early and mid-career technologists and get them into government. Those include the U.S. Digital Service, U.S. Digital Corps, and the Presidential Innovation Fellowship.
1: All right. And so where can these applicants go if they're looking to work in the government as part of this new AI executive order?
2: Well, what's really helpful about this latest effort is that the administration has updated AI.gov. It now features a portal for potential job applicants to scope out all the opportunities that are available to them. It has a link to good old USAjobs.gov, which is just the government-wide portal for all openings, but also gives applicants a heads up about those fellowship programs that I mentioned just a moment ago, and some agency-specific initiatives that are also trying to get off the ground here, specifically around AI and this emerging technology. AI.gov in its update says that agencies are really looking for AI talent to assess, pilot, and launch AI use cases within these federal agencies. So
1: this is what agencies have been waiting for, is this guidance on AI. But what else are they getting from the administration when it comes to artificial intelligence?
2: Yeah, this executive order has been long anticipated, and there's more to come for agencies in terms of this guidance. The Office of Management and Budget is expected to pretty soon release additional guidance to agencies about how they should use AI in their day-to-day work. We caught a draft version of that OMB memo, uh, which has not yet come out, but what we've understood about that so far is that when it does release, it will give agencies about 10 new to do's around AI. And that includes naming a chief AI officer and developing an AI strategy that will be available to the public for them to take a look at. We're speaking
1: here with Federal News Network reporter, Joy Heckman. So it seemed as if a lot of the concern wasn't necessarily pointed towards agencies. There's a lot of concern about what tech companies can do with this technology. What does this executive order mean for those companies working under that realm?
2: Yeah, there's a lot mentioned there for them as well. Under this EO, it cites the Defense Production Act and re- will require companies developing any foundational AI model uh that poses a serious risk to national security or national public health to notify the federal government when they're training that model and get in touch with some red team experts within the government to uh, take a look at that and understand the full ramifications of what they're working on. That's a heavier hand than this administration or recent administrations have taken around AI. What we've heard initially from industry is that In a lot of cases, most companies aren't working on those foundational AI models. They're working working on things that are a little more downstream of that. But still, this is a big deal that some companies will have to uh, be mindful of the federal government wanting a more active role in vetting this technology. There's a lot to unpack here,
1: and I'm sure that the different roles will be assessed as things start to get implemented. But what are some of the agency-specific actions that are mandated in the EO right now?
2: Yeah, this is a real whole of government effort here. Some of the specifics, the National Institute of Standards and Technology will develop standards for that red teaming, that testing of these AI systems that we mentioned just a moment ago. The Department of Homeland Security will take those NIST standards and apply those to national critical infrastructure sectors, you know, utilities like water and electricity, things that really just are foundational to the country running. And then the Department of Energy, along with DHS, will help out with looking at those threats to critical infrastructure, those threats that AI pose, and that includes cybersecurity risks. The Department of Health and Human Services will establish a new safety program that will receive reports of harm or unsafe use of AI, specifically in the healthcare space. And then the State Department will work along with the Commerce Department to work with partner countries and establish some international rules of the road for AI. Because one thing the White House has made clear here is that it's not particularly helpful if only the U.S. plays by this set of rules. They need to have partners that follow that same sheet of music when it comes to this technology for just the broad terms of what it can be used for and what it can't be used for. All right. So what's next?
1: What are they going to be releasing as far as further policy guidance for agencies working with AI?
2: Yeah. So Eric, we'll see that OMB memo for agencies pretty soon. Hard to say when exactly, but soon is what we've been told. One other thing the White House wanted to highlight here is that they are not alone in trying to advance this kind of policy work. One other thing the White House is trying to highlight here is that Congress needs to advance legislation and pass legislation that will further its priorities when it comes to AI safety, security, and equity. What the administration recognizes is that EOs come and go with each administration. And while it's the law of the land for this administration, they want to make sure that there's some staying power for these goals. And what we've seen with uh, the Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, having these AI summits on Capitol Hill, there's definitely some interest there to advance the legislation and get some of this on the books for years to come. All right. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman will keep an eye out for
1: that further guidance and definitely have you back on. Thanks, Eric. Absolutely. And you can find more of Jory's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, a longtime Fed in the financial management arena gets some much deserved recognition. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temen on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Recently, the Senior Executives Association announced the winners for its annual awards program. Among this year's winners was Avi Snow. Now retired, Snow spent several years as a financial manager for the Coast Guard, the Homeland Security Department, and ending at Veterans Affairs. I got the chance to speak with Avi to learn more about her career
2: path.
3: I came to VA in 2014. I came there. I was hired to implement a new integrated finance and acquisition system at the time. I don't know if they knew or if we knew about adding assets to that, you know, integrated assets, finance and acquisition. But, but, you know, essentially that's why I was brought to the department. They had a antiquated, still do 40 year old, over 40 years old, um, financial system and they it had never been integrated with with the acquisition system and so i came there to do that work and uh, that's what i did
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah and you you say antiquated obviously that comes with a whole host of problems you know coming from places such as homeland security and the coast guard where you know maybe things are a little bit more updated what were some of the challenges that came with having an antiquated uh, acquisition system
3: you know, interestingly, the biggest challenge of all was change management is because when you have a system in place for that long and you have all the experts and you have all the people that know how to use it, they don't want to change. And VA is a behemoth. It's huge. It's, you know, second only to DOD in size. And so, you know, I had done this work at Coast Guard, I had, you know, attempted to do the work at DHS. It was a very litigious environment, but we had implemented other systems, travel systems and whatnot, you know, with 23 components. And I can honestly say that I never come across a culture like VA where it was just it, it, it is the culture that will stop it. I mean, the system works, but the real issue is that you know, will the culture accept the change and change management was one of the biggest difficulties, I would say. So, so you know, so there's that aspect of it. And then because it's such a legacy environment, integrating with other legacy systems. I mean, VA has systems that are over 60 years old. You know, they were in mumps. You know, this is stuff that came out of MIT in the 70s. <laughs> And early 80s. And so that, you know, the technical aspects of some of that are very, very difficult. Um, So you have the technology issues. The other thing is, is that you actually have hospitals you know, we can't inter- interrupt that supply chain. I mean, you literally, you know, we can't impact patient care. We can't impact veteran care. And so what happens is is you're literally working in an environment where the systems, no matter how antiquated they are, they're necessary for the everyday care and feeding of a veteran.
1: Yeah, And obviously, supply chain issues were front and center during the past uh, two or three years or so. Um, you know, given all the uh, problems that came arose from the pandemic and made things put strain, obviously, on the medical system. Um, what were your role, I guess, in managing just how, you know, where, where finances were coming from weren't necessarily reliable?
3: Well, we were integrating with those systems. So we actually worked with those folks. I mean, those systems were in place and operating and whatnot, but but our goal was to integrate seamlessly with those systems and not impact patient care um, in, in any way or any, you know, supplies to, you know, hospitals or clinics or what have you. So, I mean, those, you know, those app operated as they as they do, it was our job to figure out how to integrate with those systems without impacting it. You know, there it's just all the things that have to be taken into consideration as you move forward with an effort of this scale.
1: We're speaking with Avi Snow. She is the retired associate deputy assistant secretary, of financial management and business transformation, and also the recipient from the Senior Executives Association Senior Executive Professional Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, let's get into those words: lifetime achievement. Obviously, a, a long career. If you could just give us a few highlights, and what are your, what you feel are your biggest accom- accomplishments, and w- why do you deserve this award, Avi? <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. Well. It's humbling, I'll tell you. You know, I started out at, you know, it's funny, I started out as an ADP intern in the 80s and I went to the Night Vision Lab and I worked on, we were very much, I mean, Night Vision was Soldier in the Field and I worked on all kinds of different programs there. I was there for Operation Desert Storm, the original issues with Bosnia, you know, like, so working on all those, you know, part of big teams, really outfitting Soldier in the Field to, you know accomplish you know whatever the you know whatever the the missions were i i also had the luck to be at night vision when the everything started going to the web um you know and so and and it was a very innovative place to be and it was it was research and development and so i i was really on that cutting edge of www you know and and um, it was interesting because the army actually had arpanet long before there was you know the world wide web and so i I really learned a lot about technology there, and then I went to the 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 Coast Guard and of course very very different mission than the army. but I got into uh, more of what I would call support systems. I actually worked on uh, it's funny I worked on a you know the h r system at first whatever but i i met Ed Murray, who actually was my boss's boss at the v a and they were doing they were actually moving coast guard systems from You know, at the time, it wasn't even really client server, but it was really they had um, just very localized systems and we were moving everything to the web. So that's really where I got my experience with. Financial systems, simplified acquisition systems, and and, and integration. Um, really doing a lot of cutting edge stuff, moving systems because the the Coast Guard was actually divided into in, into quadrants. We had land area and pack area, and you know there was the there was the North United States and the Southern United States, and of course Coast Guard. They had all the waters, you know, think about all the water, the waterways, the lakes, the, you know, so, so what we started doing is consolidating everything and bringing everything to the web. And, and that's really where I got my start on the, you know, on the financial and acquisition system side. And I have to tell you, you know, first of all, I loved working for the Coast Guard and I had some of my biggest successes and some of my biggest failures. And they say you learn from your failures and you really do the first time we ever pulled together for we you know we had this it was a simplified acquisition system and we had four disparate databases serving those four quadrants of the united states for the coast guard and we tried to bring those all together and put them on the web and (laughs) interestingly the data that oh it, it was it was a mess and Admiral Allen, uh, Thad Allen was actually the chief of staff of the Coast Guard at the time. And he's like, Avi, you're gonna fix this, right? And I go, Yes, sir, I am. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, but but we learned a lot. We learned so much about data. We learned what happens with configurations and and why, you know, these things need to be vetted. And we we learned about mock migrations of data and and really, you know, how to how to get how to get something implemented correctly with you know data in place the proper training the proper testing and that really was the foundation for everything that I did but I but I have to say I had great success at the Coast Guard and we were really ahead of our time and I I think what I didn't realize was I had a lot of people paving the way for me and it really wasn't until I got to DHS where I realized that because there I was I became like the front line I I became an SCS and and what I didn't know about you know the political world and and OMB and how you know and how politics played into this I I That's where I really learned that all those folks at the Coast Guard were paving the way for me to be able to work and deliver. And like I said, we... You know, we had incredible success, you know, 9-11 happened and we were able to bring on TSA and the air marshals and domestic nuclear detection, bring them all onto one system and and then, you know, and, and then go from there. So at least they had finance and acquisition and simplified acquisition, you know, that purchasing power, you know, those kinds of things. And then, you know, they asked me to come to the department and do the same, you know, across of what was becoming the Department of Homeland Security. So I think my the, the real success, to make a very long answer, just slightly longer, was, was really that ability to work and deliver at the Coast Guard. It, it really provided the foundation for everything that was to come.
1: Avi Snow is retired Associate Deputy Assistant Secretary for Financial Management with the Veterans Affairs Department. You can find this interview at our website. Head to federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Listen to the Federal Drive when you want, wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, with a new speaker in the house and a plethora of new cyber guidelines, what contractors can do to navigate through all the changes. But first, when to express an opinion and when to zip it up when on the job. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Whether it's the war in Ukraine, the war in Israel, the House Speaker race, or any of a zillion controversial topics, everyone has an opinion. As a federal employee, can you express your opinion out loud and not get fired for it? Federal Drive host Tom Temin got advice for this and a few other matters from federal employment attorney John Mahoney.
4: This question, I guess, is coming up in a lot of offices. It's not exactly a hatch act issue, but if you loudly and express an opinion, and Lord knows there's some controversial opinions going around, what, what can feds do and what should they not do?
5: Well, they should not be engaging in political speech at work. That's the bottom line. That's the easy answer because it does approach a Hatch hash- Act violation if they are found to be engaging in partisan political activity while being paid by the United States to be an employee.
4: Well, if it's, say, you know, this side is right or that side is right in a particular conflict, that's considered political, do you think?
5: Depends on the context. Obviously, people can express their views on issues of national importance, for sure. But if it's labeled, you know, in a partisan way that can get people in trouble. And it's certainly something to avoid both in the office while at work and also on social media. If you're a federal employee, that is an area where feds are are meeting a lot of problems with disciplinary actions for statements made on social media pages.
4: Yeah, I guess extremist type of views or views that are anti one group or another, that could be taken as out of bounds also, I imagine. Correct.
5: It's definitely an area that people need to be, you know, watchful of. And certainly, you know, they can face Hatch Act violations. They can face conduct on becoming a federal employee allegations that stem from social media posts, whether they be political or just critical of their supervisors, et cetera. So it's something that feds need to be aware of and be careful not to get in the mix of.
4: But they could be facing disciplinary action, separation or leave or even firing, I guess, if if they go too far.
5: Sure. Now, the way it works, obviously, if we're talking about a tenured federal employee, a permanent career status federal employee, if they if their agency believes that they've engaged in some kind of misconduct, Typically, there is some type of investigation, whether it's an inspector general investigation, a management investigation. You know, some agencies have OPRs, Office of Professional Responsibility. A lot of the law enforcement agencies do. So there's typically an investigation that the agencies will engage in. Traditionally, under the Privacy Act, they were supposed to come to the subject of uh, investigation to the greatest extent practicable. The statute still says that. But unfortunately that, that has been you know, somewhat gutted by court decisions. So effectively at this point, the state of the law is as long as the agencies eventually come to the subject and present the allegations to them and give them an opportunity to respond orally and in writing to any written proposed disciplinary action, that's what the due process requirement is. They have to be given written notice of the allegations, an opportunity to respond orally and in writing, and a written decision. And if the decision leads to a suspension of 15 calendar days or worse, demotion and grade or removal, most federal employees can file an appeal with the Merit System Protection Board. Short of 15 calendar days, they either have to file a grievance or an Office of Special Counsel complaint or an EO complaint.
4: Right. So the best thing is not to get into a situation like that in the first place, fair to say.
5: Exactly. Yeah, Definitely better to avoid problems than try to put your way out of the bag once you're in it.
4: We're speaking with federal employment attorney John Mahoney of Washington. And suppose a furlough should happen as a result of a federal government lapse in funding, which people are worried about now between now and November 15th, November 17th, when the current Mm -hmm. continuing resolution runs out. Any change in the rules for speech and posting if you're on furlough?
5: Well, it's still not a good idea to engage in, you know, political speech if you're a federal employee, especially if you're publishing it on social media. It can be used, you know, even if it doesn't doesn't rise to the level of a Hatch Act violation, it could be considered conduct on becoming a federal employee. So it's definitely something to avoid. You know, obviously, a lot of you know federal employees generally are concerned about the potential shutdown. You know, we've had five major shutdowns since I've been doing this for a living. They can result in MSPB appeals over the furloughs if they're 30, you know, less than 30 days at length. That's not a very good thing to appeal. Ultimately, the chances of success are pretty limited there, unless there's proven prohibited personnel practice involved. So, I wouldn't recommend federal employees file MSPB appeals over furloughs. Eventually, hopefully, if um, if the budgets are ultimately passed and uh, people go back to work, they should be able to get back pay for the furlough period that they were off on government shutdown. So, you know, eventually Congress will get their act together and, and pay back pay to the people who have been furloughed. Obviously, the essential government employees are going to have to work through the shutdown if there is one and not get paid until ultimately a budget is passed. So. It's a, it's a difficult period for federal employees, and they're sort of used as a pawn in the political struggles on the Hill, and it really does impact people's lives. If they lose you know, 30 days' pay and they don't get it back for 90 days or thereafter, that's a lot of
4: money. And if people engage in speech that's unbecoming during a furlough, perhaps it's because they're bored and they need work while they're not working. And so maybe go over what you can do for employment, alternative employment, while you're on furlough that will protect your federal position and that doesn't present a conflict of interest. What kinds of work can people do?
5: Yeah, so people need to get you know outside employment authorization from their principal employing agency before they launch into you know, outside work of any kind. So it does become difficult oftentimes, depending on what type of job the employee has, if it's somewhat sensitive or cleared or law enforcement in nature, agencies typically don't allow those people to have outside employment. If the agency is presented with the option of, of the employee working outside employment, then that becomes a difficult question is what happens when the furlough is over and Congress gives people the back pay, and they've earned money in the interim on the outside, do they have to pay back? Is it mitigated or or reduced by the amount of pay they earned in the private sector? So it gets complicated in terms of outside employment.
4: Yeah, I mean, outside employment in your field, say you're an attorney or something for the Justice Department, and you work for a law firm or something, that could be a problem, but what if you go to work for Home Depot just to do something on weekdays, and they pay you by the hour?
5: Yeah, generally the best approach is for the employee to go to their agency and seek authorization for the outside employment. I don't see a problem with someone working at Home Depot if they're, you know, a federal employee. But there are political issues involved with, you know, lobbying by outside corporations to the government, and that could create conflicts of interest. So it's very important that prior to starting the outside employment position that the employees seek and obtain approval by their federal agency to do that.
4: Those approvals then are not blanket approvals for simply working outside the agency, but they are required specifically for each particular external position you might take?
5: Yeah, that is the best approach. You don't want to accidentally fall into a situation where you're securing outside payment while you're supposed to be an employee of the federal government or, or potentially using government equipment or time or you know resources to aid the outside employment. So it gets a little tricky. The best approach is to bring it to your supervisors, the idea of the outside employment, and have it cleared by the ethics people within the agency before you start the job.
4: And sometimes people are furloughed, in their view, for something other than a shutdown. What do you do if you're furloughed and you believe it was a form of retaliation or you're being discriminated against? Then what?
5: Sure. Yeah, no, I've, I've handled cases like that. I represented I won't name the name of the group. But anyway, I I represented a case before the Court Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit on the furloughs last government shutdown. And the result is that unless the person can prove a prohibited personnel practice under 5 U.S.C. C-2302B, generally furloughs are not particularly targeted at any one particular federal employee. They apply across the board to people who are non-essential. So it's a very hard case to prove that when, you know, the vast majority of federal employees are furloughed due to a shutdown, that this one particular employee was actually furloughed for a prohibited personnel practice reason, it's a very difficult case to win.
4: Yeah, because you have to do that proof and that's paperwork and time. I mean how long does it take sometimes? It's these can be months long processes.
5: Yeah. An M S T V appeal from front to back through a hearing and a petition for review can take literally years.
4: Yeah. Wow. So you really have to have persistence and you want the job badly or it becomes a matter of maybe a sense of justice that makes people pursue so long?
5: Yeah. Certainly federal employees have a strong sense of justice. That's why they're in this business uh, of public service. So they do tend to want to die on the stake for uh, particular justice positions that they take on things. But you got to be smart. You know, you got to be cost effective and efficient in how you decide to handle prohibited personnel practice cases. Otherwise, they can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and take years to litigate.
1: Attorney John Mahoney specializes in federal employment issues. We'll post this interview at federal news dot com slash federal drive. Here the federal drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts still to come on federal news network with a new speaker in the house and a plethora of new cyber guidelines. What contractors can do to navigate through all the changes. It's the federal drive with Tom Temen on federal news network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. There is now more cyber guidance than ever for the companies that do business with the government. You can also expect even more when it comes to other new technologies like artificial intelligence. Congress seems to be back up and running and there is business to attend to to start reauthorizing a major component of the Homeland Security Department. And oh, yeah, also funding the rest of the government to get a sit rep. I got the chance to speak to Stephanie Castro, executive vice president at the Professional Services Council.
0: So back in 2018, Congress established an office at DHS really to focus on countering weapons of mass destruction. So it's detection, prevention, how to deal with issues in the aftermath if there is some sort of incident. That office was given a five-year authority, and that does expire December 21st. It's worth noting that folks who populate this office, both in the civil service and in the contractor realm, have really specialized skills. And if this office is dismantled, as it looks to be, unless it's reauthorized, contracts will shift, it becomes unclear who will have oversight, who will do the work, etc. And no one can say, you know, that tensions are easing around the world. If anything, they are increasing. And so to get rid of a countering WMD office that focuses on domestic territorial integrity really does seem to be a mistake at this point.
1: If the job is as important sounding as its title is, I imagine that the authorities and responsibilities would fall to probably other DHS offices and things would just be spread out. And that's where you're saying the confusion may lie. Nobody would know where to go to if you know they have an issue or if something does happen.
0: If something does happen or, you know, who has responsibility for what? The reason this office was created was to consolidate and to streamline issues and coverages and responsibilities. And so getting rid of it undoes all of that. And I would say it it is up for renewal. There is a bill that has passed the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. We are encouraging folks on the Hill to find a vehicle to complete this reauthorization. One concern that we do have, Eric, and, and I'll be frank about this, is that the office loses its authority on December 21st, as I said. But to get there, you have to start dismantling it weeks ahead of time. So civil servants who have been assigned to that office will either get reassigned or rift. And that is not a word I use lately. Contractors you know, are retaining their workers on this work. But if they're unsure the contract is even going to continue, those workers, contractor workers might be looking for other employment as well. So this is an area where we need to attack and get this authorized sooner rather than later before we lose all of this wealth of knowledge and expertise.
1: Yeah, you mentioned how unique this expertise is. And so the contracting field is probably not that large, but can you tell me a little bit about you know what sorts of contracts this office is involved with and just how many people that it is responsible for?
0: Well, I don't have the numbers of people in terms of the contractors assigned. I would say we have a range of contracting officials within the department itself, but on the private sector side, These run the gamut from very large corporations down to mid-size. Even some smalls are involved. They handle things like radiation portal detection. So when you come into the port of Long Beach, Or whatnot, you do get screened for radiation, for nuclear, for, you know, some of the waves that you can detect to make sure that whatever is coming into the United States is safe. These are also used in postal facilities, at airports. That is the kind of responsibility that contractors have in this space. And if there's any gap or any question of gap or loss of expertise in this area, We could really feel it in the United States. So what we are doing is encouraging Congress to find a vehicle for this reauthorization to get it done so that we can retain the goodness that's been created over the last five years.
1: Speaking with Stephanie Koster from the Professional Services Council, shifting gears a little bit here on the contracting side. A few more boxes to check for contractors when it comes to cyber hygiene. What is the first things first sort of approach that contractors will have to take with all these new cyber rules coming across from several federal avenues?
0: You know, Eric, it makes me smile because we've been talking about cybersecurity for so long now. We are seeing a plethora of proposed rules, interim rules, including everything except the one that we've been waiting for most uh, on the Department of Defense side, which is the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program, CMMC, which has become my favorite four-letter word over the last few years. We are still waiting for the proposed rules. We understand that it's sitting with the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs at OMB. Hopefully, we'll see that sometime soon. But I would say the executive branch has not stayed quietly on the sidelines waiting for CMMC. They are proceeding full charge ahead. We have lots of different proposed rules. Last year, we talked on this program about activities the Securities and Exchange Commission was taking about cyber incident reporting. That rule went final not that long ago. We are looking at cyber information sharing, threat sharing, all sorts of information coming from the agencies. From NIST, the National Institute of of Standards and Technology, we are seeing a lot of work on the cybersecurity framework, which is really what's supposed to be the umbrella of standards that companies and agencies themselves have to adhere to, different standards for different kinds of folks. But that is all a swirl right now. And then to add on to that, the president just signed out an executive order on artificial intelligence, also giving some responsibilities to NIST. And so we'll have to watch very carefully how the cybersecurity and the artificial intelligence worlds come together. You know, it's a Venn diagram with a lot of overlap here of what artificial intelligence can do and what it can't do or what it should do and what it shouldn't do. So that's what we're watching very, very closely.
1: Yeah. And this is just the beginning, right? I imagine there are going to be several asks for extension for commenting and compliance.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm glad you raised that, Eric. Uh, Two of these rules, uh, proposed rules. comments are due December 4th, but one of them is more than 100 pages long with lots of detail. The other one is close to that length. We, along with many other associations, have asked for a 60-day extension for both of those, bringing the due dates to early February. This is really to allow us to digest and see exactly what the implications are. One area I would mention is just due today, October 31st, is comments on an RFI that came out of the Office of the National Cyber Director, the Office of the National Cyber Director is looking for how best to harmonize all of the cyber regulations. What I find interesting is that this request for information comes sort of at the beginning of this latest spate. Um, You know, We'll have a lot of things to talk about. These other proposed rules, again, I mentioned comments are due either in December or hopefully February. So remaining engaged with ONDC, the Office of the National Cyber Director, to make sure everything is aligned and makes sense. I think this is going to be a repeated conversation. Yeah, and the one
1: that kind of could sneak up on folks is the new NIST rules when it comes to protecting controlled, unclassified information, just because contractors have already had a tough time even identifying what that is. And hopefully this will bring some clarification, I would hope.
0: I would hope so, too, Eric. One of the issues that we're facing is... You know, different agencies have different interpretations in practice of what controlled unclassified info, CUI, or or some people even call it CUI, what that means and, and who can own it, who can protect it. Uh, And what to do, you know, it's not classified, so it's not governed by the structure of rules, regulations, and policies that govern classified information, but understanding what it is that you have when you have controlled unclassified information and how to treat it, we're really looking forward to getting the rules of the road there really defined so that we can move out on what needs to happen.
1: All right. And new congressional leadership seems to be in place. Things are going to maybe get back to a little bit of sense of normality here, but he's got his work cut out for him, the new speaker, because there's always going to be a shutdown clock. And now he's on the docket. Uh, What is uh, your hopes for the future as this new leadership team moves in?
0: I love this question, Eric. Thanks for asking it. Speaker Johnson, for many of us, came out of nowhere. You know, we were so focused on some of the other Speaker candidates. But Speaker Johnson, when he was a then-candidate Johnson for the Speakership, released a letter where he outlined his intent to get all of the appropriations bill across the finish line before the current CR expires on November 17th. We saw them take action last week on energy and water. This week, we were watching them try to move on the Ledge Branch Interior environment, and then THUD, which is Transportation and, and Housing and Urban Development, and then two more bills next week and two more bills the week after that. This was the same kind of plan that Speaker McCarthy had, um, but he ran into several roadblocks early on, not even getting rules passed so that they consider these bills. My understanding is that Speaker Johnson would like the House to pass all of these bills, send them over the transom to the Senate so the Senate can take action, and then focus on a C.R., for whatever length is needed for that full year appropriation cycle to go through. We are fingers crossed that this could happen. We'll watch very, very closely what will happen with those three bills this week. Because, you know, this is sort of what tripped Speaker McCarthy up, getting bills to the floor and out of the House over to the Senate. And so I wish Speaker Johnson all the luck in the world, but we're really going to watch closely to see if he's got the power necessary to get these off the floor.
1: And maybe be able to capitalize off of some sort of honeymoon period, if that even exists for a position like Speaker of the
0: House. (laughs) You know, it looks like that honeymoon is the very, very short, maybe delayed even. I don't even know. Um, But November 17th, which is the end of the current CR, will be here sooner than you know it. Um, And there's a lot of work to get done and very few legislative work days to get it done in.
1: Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President at the Professional Services Council. You can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. The cybersecurity field is growing faster than ever, but the number of unfilled cyber positions has also reached new heights. A new report on the cyber workforce includes some important findings for federal agencies and contractors. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me. Justin, welcome to the program.
6: Hey, Eric. How are you?
1: I am well. So what are the findings from this latest report on the cyber workforce?
6: Yeah, so this report was put out by the International Information System Security Certification Consortium, Better known as ISC squared, it found that the cybersecurity workforce has reached a record high 5.5 million people. That's up 8.7% from 2022. But there's roughly 4 million more cybersecurity professionals needed worldwide. And that means the cybersecurity workforce gap has widened by about 12% from last year. So, you know, there's more professionals coming into the cybersecurity workforce, but there are even more that are needed to fill all the open job positionings. This study is based on a survey of uh, about 14,800 cybersecurity professionals across the globe working in a diverse range of sectors, including the government and the military and military contracting industries. So there's some relevant findings here for, you know, your federal manager, policymaker, member of Congress, what have you, who's looking at this, this hot topic of the cybersecurity workforce.
1: And so what can the government do to make up for these shortfalls that are in both the public and private sector?
6: Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. The public sector actually uh, saw the fewest cyber layoffs per the uh, ISC squared report, but they also had the uh, most shortfalls. Uh, 78% of respondents working in government said they had high staffing, uh, face staffing shortages and 76% of those working in the military contracting sector faced staffing shortages. That's at the top of all sectors. And so the the report finds that there really is this need to develop new and innovative recruiting and retention programs, especially in the federal sector. And that there's this need and this push really already underway to expand pathways into the cyber workforce. The report found that 80% of cybersecurity professionals agree. There are more pathways into the cyber uh, field than ever before. Starting out in it, continues to be a major stepping stone. Uh, 52% of those surveyed said they started out in IT before pivoting to cybersecurity. But 45% said they learned about cybersecurity concepts outside of formal training, outside of you know doing a, a degree or a certification course. Uh, so that, that's a pretty remarkable finding. Nearly half of those in the field kind of did it on their own and, and, and found a way into the field. And only 31% say that they got a bachelor's degree in cybersecurity or a related field. So only one third, you know, went to school, which really lines up, or went to school specifically for cybersecurity, which really lines up with this push we're seeing in government and parts of industry for skills-based hiring, as it's called, as opposed to focusing on degrees. Tara Wisniewski is Executive Vice President for Advocacy, Global Markets, and Member Engagement at ISC Squared. And she told me a little bit more about some of these big findings from the report.
0: And what I think is particularly important about cyber is the landscape and the technology change so fast that traditional workforce strategies are not going to be as effective. And so there really is, um, I, I think, a call for what can the federal government do to open up the talent pipeline
1: Tara Wisniewski from ISC Squared. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. So, are any agencies going to start adopting new cyber hiring practices to help mitigate some of these shortfalls?
6: Yeah, well, we've seen uh, a couple agencies over the past several years adopt kind of specialized cyber recruitment and retention programs. The Defense Department, of course, has its cyber accepted service. That has many thousands that they've now recruited into that kind of specialized cyber program with higher pay, uh, you know, different recruiting and retention type policies compared to traditional fields. And then the Department of Homeland Security has its new cyber talent management system that launched in 2021. It's, it's very similar to DOD's cyber accepted service. But other than that, there's really a patchwork of kind of authorities across the federal government. Many Agencies don't have any specialized sort of cyber hiring authorities, so they have to get a little creative. The uh, White House earlier this summer released a cyber workforce and education strategy, and it really prioritizes the shift to skills based hiring where you're doing sort of skills assessments of applicants who are looking at a federal cybersecurity position as opposed to the traditional, you know, degree requirements and self assessments and things like that. That's early, early days, though. Congress is also in some quarters pushing the administration to kind of open up the aperture in terms of who's qualified for a cyber position. A a bill called the MACE Act that passed in the House last month would actually require agencies to use only skills based qualifications as opposed to degree based qualifications for cybersecurity positions. So there's some movement. But as I said, it's early days.
1: When you talk about human capital these days in any field, really, you have to talk about diversity. What was in the report about that?
6: Yeah, the ISC squared report included uh, actually found a link between skills based hiring and diversity efforts, the success of diversity efforts. Organizations that used skills based hiring have an average of twenty five point two percent women in their workforces, which is. You know, relatively high for the cybersecurity field. As sad as it is to say, it's it's still very much lagging behind these days. And that compares to 22% for those who have not adopted those practices. So a three percent margin, but there there's definitely a margin there. And one of the major goals of the White House's cyber workforce strategy is to strengthen the cyber workforce through greater diversity and inclusion. Uh, the the theory is that if you can open it up to skills based hiring, you can also get greater diversity and inclusion in your cyber programs. And, you know, that's something that the White House is looking at, something federal agencies are looking at. And so, you know, Wisniewski told me the face of cyber is really changing. More women are coming into the field. More diversity in terms of race, class, and gender, and just more diversity of people coming in from alternative routes other than, you know, the traditional pathway of a college degree or, you know, starting out in IT. So there's some movement there in the diversity front as well in this report.
1: All right, And any other important trends across the cyber workforce that this report pointed out?
6: Yeah. One interesting thing is, is that it shows this kind of burnout from the understaffing and all the stress that comes with working from cybersecurity might be having something of an effect. Job satisfaction dipped slightly this year with 70 percent of respondents saying they are either very or somewhat satisfied with their jobs. That's down 4% from last year. Now that's still 70%. That's still pretty high, but it is it is a downturn for really the first time in these reports. And that shows that, you know, a lot of maybe the cutbacks that happened largely in the private sector in the cyber field over the last year due to, you know, the challenging economy and things like that uh, might've had an effect in addition to the traditional, you know, typical stress that comes with a cyber job. Uh, Wisniewski pointed out to me for you know federal agencies and policymakers that cyber requirements and regulations are also kind of on the rise. It's been a big priority of the Biden administration to set cyber standards. And just with all these cybersecurity incidents that are happening, there's this push to have more requirements in place across sectors. But Wisniewski argues that should come with a corresponding push to have some more cyber Workforce uh, development, because these requirements are actually increasing the demand for cyber employees. Here's what Wisniewski had to say about that.
0: If there's going to be a move to legislate and regulate, there needs to be a lot more, I think, communication and focus on what that means and what that impact is. We would love to see, I think, whenever that comes out, there is also a stream of, you know, the commitment to building the workforce because we have to do something different.
6: And again, that's Tara Wisniewski, Executive Vice President for Advocacy, Global Markets, and Member Engagement at ISC Squared. All right. Well, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday,
1: thank you so much for filling us in. Thanks for having me. And you can find more of Justin's reporting and a link to this report at federalnewsnetwork.com. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, X, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White, filling in for Tom.